Lord Jesus Christ, you are worthy of that declaration that the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Hallelujah. Amen. Jesus Christ, you are the beginning and the end. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You are the God who dwells in unapproachable light. God, you are our comforter. You are our helper. You are our strength. You are the one who is near to the brokenhearted and to the crushed in spirit. Jesus Christ, you are the one with all authority over heaven and on earth, and there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. And so, Father, I pray right now, as we humble ourselves in your presence, I pray we would not come under your word with hearts of pride, with hearts of resistance, but with hearts of humility and teachability to say, Jesus Christ, you have all authority. You are God. I am not. You are right. I am wrong. I need to change. Please help me to be more like you today. Would you draw every person, every heart in this room to yourself Holy Spirit, would you continue to pour out in this place? And right now, whatever anxieties, whatever cares we have, we just cast those on you, knowing, Jesus Christ, you care for us. You care for us and you want them. And we are not meant to carry them because you carried them. You carried them all the way to the cross. And so right now, may this be a time just of release, remove distractions. Lord, guard my mouth from error. Holy Spirit, say what you want to say to your church and have your way in Jesus' name, church. If you agree, say amen. 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 You may be seated. From Deuteronomy chapter 6, let's do just that. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 9. If you do not have a copy of God's word in front of you, just put up your hand. The ushers are going to be coming forward right now. We want to put a copy of God's word in your lap. And if you do not have a copy of the Bible at home, please take that as a gift so you can continue to study God's word on your own in your personal times of worship. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 9. Well, as you look around the state of our country today, you won't have to look very long to see that the state of the family is in crisis. There is so much distortion and confusion about what the family is and what God has intended it to be. And how it is to function for his glory. And it's so easy, loved ones, to look around and to become discouraged. To become anxious. To become fearful. And to feel helpless. Because of what's going on. And because quite often we don't know how to stand on the truth of God. That he promises to build the family upon. And so the heart of this message is going to focus on answering this question. What is God's heart for the home? He is the architect. He instituted the family. He instituted the house of God, the church. 
What is God's heart for the home? What does he promise to bless and give support to in it to see it built up? Not just for the biological family. If you're here and you're like, well, I don't have a spouse. I don't have kids. This message isn't for me. Uh, Wrong. If you are a part of the family of God, you are a part of the household of God. So what are the implications of this message for us as a church and the crucial role we are to play in seeing the family built up? And so there are many things that God's word teaches us about this, but all of them are centered around one thing. And it is this word, discipleship. Discipleship. God's heart for the home is a heart for discipleship. Now, let's get some clarity because there's a lot of people here. We want to make sure we're on the same page and coming at this clearly. Discipleship just simply means to make disciples. To make disciples. Now, some of us are here, you've maybe got different backgrounds. You're like, well, what's a disciple? So let's drill down on that, get some clarity. You'll see it on the screen. A disciple, the Greek word for disciple, means one who progressively learns the word of God and is obedient in the lifestyle it requires. Now, notice the word progressively there. That's key. You never hit your discipleship ceiling. I hope we never come under the word of God and say, yeah, I figured that out. There's nothing in it for me. We never hit our disciples. It's progressively learning. It's one who's not just growing in their knowledge of God, their belief of God, but the practice of that knowledge by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're not just here to gain a bunch of knowledge and do nothing with it. We work out the knowledge by the power of the Holy Spirit in the practice of the truth of God. And you say, why is this so important that we drill down on this? Well, quite simply, because discipleship is the greatest mission God has given the home to fulfill. Let me say that again. Discipleship is the greatest mission that God has given the home to fulfill. To see one generation after another rooted and built up in him to advance his kingdom through for his glory. And we see this in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, where Jesus has just risen from the grave and he's about to ascend to heaven. He's got about 500 disciples in front of him and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Based on that, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And I don't know about you, but this is one of the greatest promises ever. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. This is God's heartbeat for the house of God, corporately and biologically in our homes. But there's a problem, and it is this. Most Christian homes and entire churches have actually no idea how to do this. 67% according to the latest research. And the result is more families, more children are being discipled in the world than the word. And the result of that is that we start to fill our homes, we start to fill our churches with what the world says we should give our attention to, our time to, our efforts to, our finances to, our affections to, and the family is crumbling because of it. Just look around. Churches are crumbling because of it. Hey, be encouraged with this, loved ones. But God has a different plan. Amen? God has a different 
plan. He's given us a mission to make disciples. And he's given us not just the mission, love this, he's given us a blueprint of discipleship for the home that will endure no matter what comes against it. It's not like when God gave the command to make disciples, he didn't see what was coming down the road. He's not panicking about that. He says, will we trust him? Will we trust that his word will prove true? And here in our text today, we will see three marks of discipleship that we must increasingly grow in and commit to if God is to build the home to endure and we are to be faithful to the mission that he's given for it. Three marks of discipleship. You guys ready? Let's do this. Come on, Lord. Deuteronomy 6, 4-9. Let's read together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Well, the first mark of discipleship we see in the home is this, is that a house of discipleship is a house of declaration. It declares there is only one God it will serve. It is a house of declaration. And the question that we are confronted with by the first part of this text is this. Our allegiance is to be to God alone. What is taking his place? Our allegiance is to be to God alone what is taking his place. Look at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Let's get some context. Really important read scripture in context. Here we are. It's been almost 40 years since Israel left Egypt at this point. And the first generation has all but died off. There's a few survivors. Joshua, Caleb, obviously Moses, who's preaching this right now. They died after they came out of the Red Sea, but they didn't inherit the promised land because of their lack of faith. And so a new generation has been raised up. And here's where they are. They're encamped on the east side of the Jordan River on the plains of Moab. You'll see it on the screen. At a place called Shittim. This is where it's taking place. And so they're almost ready, just across from Jericho, they're almost ready to cross into the promised land. And Deuteronomy itself takes place during the last few weeks of Moses' life. And mostly, I mean, you think you've heard some long sermons. Deuteronomy is mostly one sermon. All right, mostly one sermon. And it's a farewell speech that Moses is giving to the people before he dies. And really, Deuteronomy summarizes the rest of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. It summarizes all of that for the people. And its focus is to lay out God's implications and commands for the people as they entered the land that he promised to them, the land, as you see there, of Canaan. And these were words of both warning and wisdom. And through them, God tells what he was promising, get this, what he was promising to bless and build their nation, bless and build their house, home through, if they would be faithful in them. To summarize that, I would say this. 
If the people of Israel stayed faithful to the Lord in these things, he would not only bless and build the nation in their own generation, but in the coming generations also. And so you see right out of the gate, Moses starts out with this, verse 4. He says, hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The word, Hebrew word for hear there means to listen, pay attention. This is the last thing that Moses is going to be saying in this book. This is the last thing this, of Deuteronomy. It's the last thing he's saying. And here he is focusing right at the start of it on this. He goes, listen or pay attention to this truth that is about to be said that will set the trajectory and the foundation for all else that will follow. And the truth is this. The Lord your God is one. The, the Hebrew word for Lord there means Yahweh. Yahweh is one. It is a declaration of allegiance that declares, here's what he's saying. There is only one God and Yahweh is him. He is to be the object of your wholehearted and undivided worship, allegiance, and devotion. And we have to understand why Moses is, is saying this so strongly here. Because the truth is this. Israelites were entering Canaan. You see, they're just a hop over the river from Canaan. They're about to enter Canaan where they would be tempted to worship the false gods that the Canaanites had made for themselves. And compound that with the false gods that they had started to worship in Egypt. And then compound that with the false gods of the Mesopotamian and Babylonian that they inherited from their father Abraham and his father Terah. So they're compounding this. And so their worship, he's warning them here, their worship was so polytheistic. Moses is saying, you can't worship the true God and false gods at the same time. Now, let's just get some clarity in case there's anyone here that's like, well, that's the Old Testament, it's kind of out of style. Let's just get some clarity on, so I did some research on what these gods of Canaan, gods of Egypt, and gods of Babylonia were, that they were in danger and, and had in fact started to worship. See if they have any relevance for today, okay? All of these gods, we summarized them up, there's thousands of them, so we won't go through every one today. But here you go, gods of food, gods of prosperity, Gods of wealth, gods of peace, gods of health, gods of fertility and sex, gods of protection and security, gods of provision. Gods of love and relationships. Gods of position and success. Gods of strength. And gods of comfort. Okay. Look at our homes today. Are we not tempted to give our allegiance to the same things? 
every day, many times. See, instead of our homes declaring that our allegiance is to God alone, so often they resemble allegiance to the attitudes actions, expectations, and values of the world. And instead of being our one God, the Lord has become one of many that we try to serve with a divided allegiance. Usually it works itself out like this. I can serve God, but I'll serve my desire for more finances too. I can serve God, but I'm going to serve my possessions too. I can serve God, but I'm going to serve my comfort too. I can serve God, but I'm actually going to serve my agenda for the way I want things to go. Hey, loved ones, we must understand this. What you and I put first is always going to order the rest. What you and I will put first will always order the rest. And you'll see it on the screen. Whatever you say has the authority in your home will become the priority of your home. Whatever you and I say has the authority in our home becomes the priority of our home. So question, just look at this past week. Just look at this past week. Look at your schedule. How about you? What declaration of allegiance are you making in your home? How about in us as a church? Does your lifestyle, do your entertainment choices, the movies that you're watching, the websites you're looking at, the music that we're listening to, Reflect an allegiance to the Lord alone. What about, does our hunger for God's word reflect that? Does the use of time and what we put our time, talents, and treasures towards reflect that? Do the conversations we have around the dinner table, in the hallway, in the car, do they reflect an allegiance to the Lord alone? Do the values that we uphold Does the fight against sin that we make reflect an increasing allegiance to God alone? Or is your home declaring a greater allegiance to the small g gods of this world? Just ask ourselves a question. Let's just in humility ask, Lord, what is taking your place? Because loved ones, here's the reality. There's nothing new under the sun. We haven't arrived on this. The same things the Israelites are going to be tempted with are the same things we're going to be tempted with as soon as you leave here. Maybe right now in your seat. Ask, God, what's taking your place? See, this is where discipleship starts. A house of discipleship is a house of declaration. It only serves one God, and every other part of our lives is increasingly ordered by him. And as an overflow from this, we see that a house of discipleship is not only a house of declaration, but it is a house, mark number two, of demonstration. It displays our love for God above all. A declaration leads to demonstration. And the question that we are confronted with in this section of the text is this. Who I love is shown through how I live. Am I loving God above all? 
Who I love is shown through how I live. Am I loving God above all? Look at verses 5 and 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Look at the imperatives here every time you see a shall. Ready? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You see in verse 5 there, after reminding the people that their allegiance must be to God alone, Moses then gives them God's central command. Here it is. The central command that all others hang on or depend on. All 613 other commands that God has given his people up to this point. Hang on this one. This is the central one. To love the Lord with all of their heart, soul, and might. If I could sum up that, we hear that and we're like, yeah, I want to love the Lord. Let's get some clarity on what this means. To love the Lord your God with your complete or total being. Every part of who we are. All they are, all we have. Now, you recall Jesus says this himself in Matthew 22, 37 to 39 when he gives us the great commandment. And the Greek parallel word for love here means this. It means three main things when we talk about what does a love for God look like. Affectionate reverence. Affectionate reverence for God. A deep honor, respect, and a deepening love for him. Number two, it means a prompt obedience to God. So affectionate reverence for God, of course it does, because that's what affectionate reverence leads to, a prompt obedience. It's not, well, I see what God's word says, but I'm just going to kind of wait until I'm sure that that's what it says. A prompt obedience. We're not delaying obedience. That grows us and shows a love for God in our lives. And number three is this, very convicted by this, a gratitude for all that one has received, not greed. A gratitude for all that one has received. There's three aspects Jesus unpacks in the parallel of this in Matthew 22 of what a love for God means. And let's break that down to make this crystal clear. Let's get on a street level. It means this. Every thought, think about this moment. Every thought you have, every feeling, every desire, and every part of our identity, all that we are, Let's keep going. Everything we do in every second of our lives, everything upon which our heart is set and our mind is captivated by will be an expression of our love for God and we will love nothing else more than him. Yeah. How's that working? Anybody think they need a savior right about now? Me too. Me too. You see, and then in verse 6, Moses tells them that this love, how is this love to be fueled? How is it to be fueled? By having God's word on their heart. Look at verse 6, loved ones. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. A love for God is fueled by the word of God. 
They shall be on your heart. The Hebrew there means this. It is to be perpetually on our minds. We are to be perpetually studying it, knowing it, meditating upon it, and understanding and obeying it. It shall be on our heart. Now, now listen, listen, let's make something very clear. Moses is not talking here of doing this out of legalism. I'm trying to earn something before God. He's saying not out of legalism, but out of a growing love for the Lord himself. Because the truth is this, you'll see it on the screen. True obedience is only possible out of a response of love to God, not a legalistic requirement to keep for God. True obedience is only possible out of a response of love to God, not a legalistic requirement to keep for God. It's not like you can leave here today and say, well, I'm just gonna love God more and just white knuckle that obedience. How's that gonna go for you? You'll probably get into the car and by the time you get home, you're done. True obedience, true love for the Lord is out of a response to God of what he has done. And a growing love for God keeps you growing in a love for his word and obedience to it. It's a cycle. Each of them fuels each other. If I love God more, I'm going to want to be in his word more. And the more I'm in his word, the more it fuels my love for him. And desire to obey Let's just think of it this way. Like, think about this. how radical is that from the love we see promoted in the world today? How radical is that? You see, let's break this down. A love for God compels us to get up every morning to spend time with Him and not give Him the leftovers of our day. Psalm 5 3, the psalmist says, In the morning I prepare a sacrifice and watch. I worship you and watch. You're the forefront of my heart, the forefront of the day. That makes no sense on a human level. Why would you forego two hours of precious sleep? 30 minutes of precious sleep. Why would you do that? A love of God compels you. This is why so many people, we just try, well, I'm just going to try really hard. and It's not going to last. It's a response of love. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we have through Jesus Christ, we are saved in him. Now look at this. A love for God compels us to fight the temptation in his power when it comes. A love for God says, Lord, I'm tempted with what's sitting on my computer screen right now. But Lord, grow me in my love for you. And, and what, I love how John Piper puts this. The lasting way to fight sin is with superior pleasure in Jesus. Lord, I love you more than what I'm seeing. I love you more. Help me to love you more in this moment when I'm tempted to lose it on my spouse or on my kids. Lord, help me to love you. Help me have pleasure to be in you so I don't have to seek satisfaction with those around me. I don't have to walk in the fear of man anymore. Help me to love you more. Because I will tell you this, loved ones. A growing love and reverence for the Lord, a growing fear of the Lord, eats a fear of man for breakfast every day. Gives us that power to fight sin. A love for the Lord compels us to walk in humility and submit to his authority instead of our walking in our own pride. 
the cry of a heart that is desiring to love the Lord says, as John 3.30 says, Jesus, you must increase and I must decrease. Your kingdom come, my kingdom go. So many of us just want to say, your kingdom come, your will be done, as long as it's on my terms. It doesn't work like that. Your kingdom come, my kingdom go. A love for God compels us to lay down our lives for others as he has for us. This is why Jesus says in John 15, 13, greater love has none than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. A growing love for the Lord compels us, I love this, to teach others about him. I love Acts 4.20. One of the disciples, Peter and John, they just got dragged before the courts, but yeah, they get warned, don't do this, and they're like, yeah, whatever. He's like, we can't help but speak of what we've seen and what we've heard. That's a heart that's on fire for the Lord. We can't help but speak. Fear of man, gone. Love it. Love it. So question, this leads us to, are you growing in your love for the Lord? Are you growing in your love for the Lord? Is his word increasingly on your heart? Here, let's drill down. Let's, let's make it as clear as possible. Are you making it a priority to spend time reading the word, saying, God, give me a hunger for your word that I cannot manufacture? Are we making time for it? Because here's the truth. You and I will always have time for the things we make time for. And what we make time for is the greatest reflection of our priorities and what we love the most. Are we making a priority to meditate on it, to pray it, to journal it, and to live in obedience to it? John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Where do we need to start? Maybe for some of you here, like I said, we can't manufacture this on our own. It has to be given through salvation in Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you're here and you've never submitted your life to Jesus Christ, believing that he came to die for you as fully God and fully man and pay your penalty that you deserved on the cross for your sin and rose again three days later to give you the resurrection power to live with a growing love for him and to see the house built up for his glory, that's your first step to say, Jesus, I need you. I repent of my sin. I need you. That's where it starts. And if you're here and you've made that decision, what's your next step? Maybe for some of you, it's like, I gotta get on a reading plan. I just, I just wanna start. Lord, help me to grow in my hunger and I'm just gonna start with this verse today. Maybe I'm gonna ask for accountability in my small group. And this is why, this is why, loved ones, the greatest prayer, one of the greatest prayers we could ever pray is just quite simply this. Lord, Help me to love you more today. Lord, help me to love you more than my sin. Lord, help me to love you more than being right. Lord, help me to love you more than my pride. Lord, help me to love you more than my family. See, we can't do it without his power in us through Jesus Christ. And why is this so important that Moses picks this out? Here, you'll see it on the screen. Because the greatest thing, hear this, loved ones, the greatest thing your family needs from you, the greatest thing this family of God at Harvest Bible Chapel, Mississauga needs, the greatest thing your children need, the greatest thing your spouse needs, your extended family, is your personal holiness in the Lord. 
is a growing love for the Lord. Think about that. It's not your money. It's not your gifts that you give. It is not the experiences you want to give them. See, because this right here, your personal holiness in the Lord as you grow in love for him, and Jesus Christ increases, this is the root of discipleship through demonstration, modeling a growing love for the Lord in words, our thoughts, and actions by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because here's the truth. Here's the truth, loved ones, we need to remember. I was hit with this heart about three years ago when we moved to Ottawa to plant the church. Ah! Crazy. But here's what I learned very clearly. You can't teach what you don't know. And you can't lead where you're not going. You can lead to a place you've never been before. By the power of the Holy Spirit in you. If God has called you to it, he will see you through it. But you can't lead to a place. You can't lead your family. You can't lead your brothers and sisters in Christ to greater love for the Lord if you're not going there yourself. This is what it means to make disciples. Being a disciple of Christ is making disciples for Christ. This is what it means. We're growing in that belief and practice in our own lives first. And it's not, let me just encourage you. This is not about perfection. You and I are going to blow it. I blew it this week. Amen. Just me, maybe? Just me? Okay, yeah, okay, thanks, y'all. I really wanted more hands. But that's the reality. I blew it this week. But here's the reality. It's not about perfection, but it is about perseverance in the power of the Holy Spirit. It is not about perfection. And when you and I... Fall and you hear that voice of the enemy chirping the guilt at you and the condemnation. You remember the words of Jesus Christ that says, I am with you always. I will not leave you or forsake you. I love you with an everlasting love. Nothing can snatch you from my hand. Shut that down, devil, because I have been redeemed and restored by the blood of the Lamb and it will overcome by the word of his testimony. Keep your lies to yourself in your face, Satan. Step by step. Step by step. And it's so important because not only is a house of discipleship a house of declaration saying there's only one God it's going to serve. Not only is the mark of a house of discipleship demonstration, increasingly displaying a love for God above all. Lastly, we see this, that a house of discipleship, Mark number three, is a house of diligent instruction. It teaches our kids God's truth in all. And the question that we're confronted by this last portion of the text is this. God's word is to be central in the home. Is it in mine? God's word is to be central in the home. Is it in mind? Look at verses 7 to 9. Moses goes on. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. See, Here, Moses tells the people that they are commanded to not keep the truth of God to themselves. 
as you have the word of God on your heart, you're not to keep it to yourself, but to ensure you and I as followers of Jesus Christ have an an entrustment to ensure that his word is diligently taught to our children. The word, now notice this. Okay, here, Bible reading 101. When you read a section like this, why didn't Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just say this? You shall teach them to your children. When you hear a word like diligently, you should stop in your Bible reading circle and say, why not just say teach them? Why diligently? He's pointing something out here. Why? Well, here, the word diligently means this. To The Hebrew word means sharpen. Love it. Sharpen. The picture here that is used is of a sharpening the blade of a weapon. Sharpening the blade of a weapon or tool. That's why Psalm 127 says, like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children once used. Arrows are not effective if they're dull. We just, they need to be sharpened. And it means to teach God's word clearly, precisely, with precision, carefully, intentionally. And here's the thing, not flippantly. Not like, oh yeah, the Bible's a joke and hey, just want to be cool. With it. Not flippantly or haphazardly. Now how does he do this? I love how God's word, just, God knew we would need so much help. And so he makes it clear. Just watch this. How do we do this? Moses then tells them how they're to be doing this. He tells them they are to be diligent in making it an intentional part of everyday life. Look at 7b. You shall teach them diligently to your children when? And shall talk of them when you sit in your house. See, look at what he says here. These are the conversations around the table. The conversations in your living room. The conversations when you're making preparation to go somewhere, when you're sitting out on your patio. Teach them diligently in that moment. Talking about, I love this, talking about how their day was and taking the time to invest into their hearts and to hear their hearts. So often as parents, we're so concerned about getting the next right answer. We're not listening to understand. We listen to respond. And that will shut a kid down. Listen to understand. Intentionality. And then like here, like how about this? You see this? When you're watching a movie, when you have family movie night or something like that, and you're watching a movie and you see something that you know, parents, doesn't line up with God's word. And you're like, mm, that's not right. I, I, you know, I love my wife so much. I'm going to put her on the spot here for a moment. Love her so much. She's so good at this. And she does. She goes, where's the remote? Where's the remote? And she takes it. Beep. She goes, okay, gents. She's like, what's not lining up? What is false about what he just said? Where will that line of thinking take him if he chooses to follow that to the end, even though he thinks it's so good right now? And what does God's word have to say about that? See, we're called to disciple our kids in a biblical worldview, literally showing them how it applies to every single situation they will face and that we will face. His word is sufficient. It will prove true, and it is a shield for those who take refuge in it. It will prove true. 
And so many of us think, well, that's the Bible. You know, it's not relevant. Loved ones, hey, just give it a shot. Trying to make the Bible relevant. Hey, can I just say this? Is like trying to make water wet. The Bible speaks to literally every single situation. They will encounter with their friends. They will encounter online. They will encounter with the temptations they're going to face at school. Every single one. Are we giving it a shot? I love, how, I love how Martin Luther just said it so beautifully. He goes, the word of God is a lion. Let it out of the cage and it'll fend for itself. You got to let it out of the cage. Normal conversations, day-to-day interactions. And then he goes on. He says, teach them diligently to your children. We shall talk to them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. Your daily activities that you do with them, loved ones. The walks that you take. The playgrounds you go to. The school pickups. And hey, I get it. We got four little boys. Love you dudes. But here's the reality. Someday when I'm driving and pick them up from school, or Natalie's driving to pick them up, so it's like, is it like three o'clock already? They're like, oh, because they're coming in the van. It's like, pow, 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 pow. And you're like, oh. But the reality is you're like, Lord, I'm tired, but help me to love you more than my desire for comfort right now. Help me to put the DVD screen up and to say, how was your day? Tell me about it. I get it, it's hard. But this is why we can't do it on our own strength. We do it in the power of the Spirit and he's ready to pour himself out for that moment because nobody wants the hearts of those children more than the one who created them. I'll tell you that. When you lie down, when you rise, daily activities. Here, here's another one. Keep going. Verse 7b. When you lie down, when you rise. The first, what this means, this is a Hebrew merism. It means it's the first part and last part of the day and everything in between. Literally everything between. Hey, don't ever underestimate. This is, loved ones, this is why it's never just another moment. This is why it's never just another Sunday. This is why it's never just another Harvest Kids class. Why it's never just another small group. This is why it's never just another bedtime prayer. Why it's never just another movie night. This is why it's never just another family devotional time around the table. Why it's never just another pickup time from school. Because when God's glory is on the agenda, and we are instructed when we go out, when we come in, literally every part, don't ever underestimate the power of God in that moment. I want to encourage you. Hey, loved ones, some of you may be here like, you know, I, 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 can't, I, can't, I can't do this. I can't do this. Hey, just remember, supernatural acts of God, they begin with ordinary acts of obedience. Like, ordinary acts of obedience. Say, God, I don't have the words, but I'm trusting your Holy Spirit. I'm putting the DVD up right now, and we're going to talk. Help me. This is why we got to have something going on with Jesus first. We got to have his word on our heart if we're going to be able to speak it into the lives and live it out and model it into the lives of the next generation. And if you're here and you're like, well, wait a second, you know, I'm, I don't have any kids. This doesn't apply to me. Or maybe your grandparents and you're like, well, my duty's done. My kids are, no, your duty's not done, loved ones. If you're not dead, God's not done. That's the reality. There's a Harvest Kids class right there with hundreds of kids that God has entrusted to this church. Young adults, don't wait to get plugged in. Grandpa, grandma, don't wait to get plugged in. 
Loved ones, they're right there. And no one wants them more than the one who created them. No one wants them more than Jesus Christ. And he has called you to be a part of this church. That means he's called you to disciple them. That's the reality, loved ones. Pick up the application. Where do you have applications now? Out there? Yeah, pick up the application out there. Hand it in this week. Do it online. Like, honestly, just don't waste the moment. And here's the thing. You say, well, I'll do this when my children get older. Then they'll be able to understand. Hey, can I just torpedo that for a second? In love. Don't wait until you think your children are old enough before you start teaching them God's word. And so often it is tragic because we get caught looking at the size of their height instead of remembering the capacity of the heart that God has given them that his living and active word is going after every time his word is confronting them. Don't get caught on that. And here, I love how Charles Spurgeon said this. He says, teach children early for children begin to sin early. That's the reality. Why would you let sin manifest itself for five years before you crack a children's Bible? Why? The longer you wait, the more closed off they become because that's the nature of sin, pulling us away from the Lord. Finding temptation, finding satisfaction in other things that will never satisfy. And then lastly, let's look at verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. See, Moses tells the people they, what they must do to ensure that they're ready for these opportunities. He says that we are to instruct our children by binding God's word to ourselves and having it on hand. Have it on hand, ready to use. I mean, how many times, loved ones, how many times do we have our phone in our hands in front of our kids and we're using that instead of having God's word on hand and taking that moment? For the kingdom. We have it ready to use on our minds, on our hearts, in a place of perpetual remembrance from our time we've spent in it. That's the frontlets between your eyes so we can speak readily to the situations that arise. And can I just encourage you? Love, and some of you may be here and you're like, you're like, well, I don't have a seminary degree. I can't, I can't disciple my kids. Sometimes I can't even understand. Hey, listen, God is not asking us to like exegete Leviticus on the van ride home. It's like, wow, there's a tree. Look how God is growing it. Did you know he loves you more than that? Did you know he created, look at these stars that you have. Did you know Isaiah 40, 26 says he calls everyone out by name and he holds in place so not one is missing and yet he's totally here with you? And he loves you more than that? There's discipleship. There's the biblical worldview. There's the biblical worldview that God is going after here. And then, and then look at verse 9. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. See, lastly, we are to constantly remember and remind our children and ourselves that God's word has this central place in our home and that it is our final authority that we live by. That's why he chooses the doorposts and the gates. These were the prominent entrances to the home and the city in that culture. And what was displayed at these places was used to display what had authority over that city or that home. This is so key. I don't know how many times, like over this crazy, whacked out church planting journey over the last three years, there's been a picture of Deuteronomy 8.2 in our living room. And it says, remember how the Lord your 
your God has led you all the way. And you have no idea how many times I come out of my room and I'm like, I don't know how we're going to make it through this day. This situation goes, I don't know how. And then he just, re, in love, he just redirects. He says, son, it's time to repent of your fear and get your eyes back on me. Remember how I've led you all the way. And then my kids walk past. They're like, what does that mean? Why did you put that there? And then you tell them and you pass it on. You pass it on. So last question of the day, how about you? Is God's word central in your home? And what is your next step to having it be? Because here's, Here's the last truth you're going to see on the screen. It is this. If we don't disciple our children, the world will. People will say, why do you spend, why do you, why do you make your family such a priority? Why do, you, why do you do that? I said, because if I don't, you will. And you have been blessed, loved ones, with a church that is committed to support, care for, and partner with you in this mission. You have a fantastic family ministries team in this church. I'm looking at Pastor Phil right now here. You have a wonderful family ministries team here, Pastor Chris, Pastor, who are committed to walk this journey with you. The question is, will you ask for help? You're not alone. Will you do it and will you be part of that ministry? And you may say here, I can't, I can't do this. And my answer is right, you can't do it on your own. You can't do it on your own. But I will remember and refresh you in this gospel truth and it is this. Remember this, loved ones. God will never ask from you what he's not first willing to do in you. God will not ask from you what he's not first willing to do in you. And he sent us his only son, Jesus Christ. Listen to this beautiful truth. Fully God, fully man. And look at the life of Jesus. He lived a perfect allegiance to God the Father. A perfect allegiance, a perfect declaration. He displayed a perfect love for him and diligently instructed the truth about him in every opportunity he was given. And he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin and rose again three days later so that all who repent of their sin and confess him alone as their Lord and Savior will have forgiveness of sin, eternal life with him, and know this, and will be given the power, love, wisdom, and grace now to live faithfully for him when we draw near to him and call on his name every single time. This is the glorious truth of the gospel that will build the house. This is the glorious truth of the gospel that will not fail and build that house for his glory. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, I am so comforted in this moment that you came to earth to forgive us our sin and to save us if we would confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. And through that, you've given us all we need for life and godliness. And I ask right now, Lord, whatever your Holy Spirit's doing, I pray there's not a spirit of condemnation here, but a spirit of God-given conviction, but God-given encouragement that you have not left us to ourselves with the impossible task of seeing disciples made in our homes, in this church, from every tribe, tongue, and language. Thank you that the gospel is not bound. And I ask in Jesus' name that, Lord, you would be welling up a fire in our hearts 
to live out this mission in the power of the Holy Spirit under the authority of Jesus Christ of making disciples, not just in our generation, but for generations to come. Because why? Great are you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.